Hi everybody, and welcome to Left Unread. Uh, I am your host, Cam, joined as always by my co-host. This is Evan, what's up? <laughs> um, and we are back today with the long-promised fourth installment of my Mongols series, which is going to be a long series. <laughs> I think we're both embroiled in some long series right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was. we were actually just talking off camera that this is probably the longest single episode that there will be in the series, just because of the way the narrative kind of fell. Um, and normally we start with a lot of talking about other stuff. And there actually were a few things that I wanted to talk about today, but I guess we can save those for... Uh, not as long of an episode because we don't want to be recording for nine hours so uh, if it's (laughs) all right with you uh you want to just start the show let's do it all right This is this is the Mongols four. Um, so this episode is a continuation of an ongoing series on the rise of the Mongols, uh, which is currently focused mostly on the life of, of Genghis Khan. Um, he's a huge part of the story. He'll probably be two thirds of the episodes, um, but we are now going to take a real big leap uh, through probably the largest single chunk of his life in years that we will in any single episode um so the last episode of this series the mongols three uh a can do a con do attitude is episode 84 so it's been a little while since we did this um but just a reminder that all previous episodes of that and all of our series can be found in chronological order in our spotify playlist titled lu series uh, this playlist contains all of our multi-part episodes uh, more easily organized for your listening pleasure um, because, you know, like we've said a million times, we release things in kind of a scattered way just because that's how we're able to work on it. Um, <clears throat> so I'm not going to do a big recap here. Uh, you should definitely go well, I also just want to say uh, we also have the playlist with all of the music that we use uh, in our episodes. So if uh, anytime you want to uh, know... Uh, Anything that you hear on this podcast, you can check that, and all the music that we use will be on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and I know that that's pretty much exclusively helpful for Spotify users, but we also know that you are the largest chunk of our listener base, so hopefully that's uh, helpful to a good amount of you. Um, and I don't know that it's really available to us in other mediums without 
some kind of weird monetary thing, which we won't do or ask you to do. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, so like I said, I'm not going to do a huge recap here because um, we don't really have time. And also, I want you to go back and listen to that if you haven't. Um, but I will tell you this. Our story picks up with the stunning defeat of the Merkid tribe. Uh, by a coalition of Mongols and Karyids, who sometimes are called Mongols, sometimes are not. So I'm going to treat them kind of like they're separate. Um, under the joint direction of Temujin, who's kind of our protagonist. Um, he's at this point in his like late teens, he's maybe 17. Uh, and his long-lost blood brother, Jamuka, who's probably a little bit older. Um, and Temujin's new adopted father, Onkan, who's the ruler of the Karyid tribes. And he's one of the big three players in the steppe politic sphere. Um, the Merkids had raided young Temujin's camp, stealing many things, horses and furs and stuff. But most importantly, they stole his wife, who was a young, beautiful Mongol lady named Borte, which is a beautiful name. And I forget what it means, but I'm sure it's something. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a very, very, uh, very pleasant sounding name. Yeah, it really rolls off the tongue. The Mongols do names better, I think, than than most other people they have some fucking like Jamuka. maybe not for the women not great names for women but for the men i think they're all good i, mean, yeah. I don't know i think i'm just <laughs> saying I, i'm not sure i know too many women that would be okay with being named porta yeah exactly but, like if like do like jam uh, jamuka yeah fuck yeah dude yeah i'll go with jamuka yeah it's kind of like jabroni actually if there was a mongol named jabroni well it's more it, like, like jamok than jabroni yeah that's true <laughs> um <clears throat> So, initially unwilling to participate in the kind of never-ending cycle of step violence that had plagued his childhood, Temujin found himself unable to stifle his need for vengeance, the thirst to get revenge. And uh, so he had called upon Onkan and Jamuka to raise an army and destroy the Merkids and recapture Borte. Uh, and this had all gone down successfully, which is great. Um, everything's, everything's coming up Temujin. Um, the gang's all together. Uh, he's coming into his own as a military commander, which is something he never thought he was going to do. Uh, he thought he had his old Anda or blood brother back. I'll use those two terms kind of interchangeably, but remember Anda is like the Mongol term for, you know, your sworn brother closer than flesh, whatever. Um, and all of this is looking great, except as we discussed, uh, Borte came back with a baby bump. So... <clears throat> As I mentioned before, the best contemporary source on a lot of this stuff, especially on Temujin's early life and his rise within steppe politics, is the Mongols' secret history, which was compiled uh, by his successors and provides some of the most intimate details of Temujin's life available to modern historians. However, it is yet to be, uh, it has to be noted that one of the primary functions of the secret history, and especially at the time that it was written, uh, is that a piece of, as a, uh, as a piece of propaganda. Um, because at that point, by the time it was written, which is probably almost 100 years after a lot of this stuff is, is taking place, um, the Mongol Empire had extended far beyond the steps that this story is taking place to include a huge array of peoples and places. Um, and we will get to all of that because that's a big part of why this story is so rad. Um, as such, there will always be certain subjects where it seems clear that a degree of whitewashing likely took place in the narrative. And the birth of Temujin's first son is a perfect example of that. So whilst the secret history is relatively silent on the circumstances surrounding Borte's first pregnancy, it does note that her first child with Temujin, a son, was born in 1179 CE and given the name Jochi, which in Mongolian means guest or visitor. 
Uh, it seems obvious to some that this name alone indicates that Temujin himself was doubtful of the boy's parentage. Um, keep in mind, Borte was was married off or captured or however you want to look at it, but she was she was given to a man um, with the Mercads for at least a few months. Um, and, you know, we all know what that probably meant. She wasn't probably just cooking and cleaning. So, um... She was sucking and fucking. I mean, yeah. And it was... <laughs> rape is sort of a... You know? It wasn't chill. It wasn't like a chill thing. Yeah. Um... However, uh, during Temujin's lifetime, lifetime at least, um... Jochi's status as his son is never really openly discussed, and his name could just as easily have been in reference to uh, Temujin's clan's status as guests of Jamuka at the time of his birth. Uh, doubt over the identity of, of Jochi's true father will absolutely play a major part in the narrative in future episodes, but for now, it's just something to make note of. Um, just remember that that's the case, um, while understanding that as far as we can tell, uh, and as far as he wanted us to be able to tell through his, you know, legacy, Temujin accepted and raised the boy as his own. Just gave him that weird name that, you know, of course invites a lot of doubt. So as I mentioned, uh, this was a good time for Temujin's little band of followers, which also still included his mother, Holun, who for the rest of her life is going to be a big deal. He's a mama's boy. He loves his mother. And he makes her like one of his main confidants and advisors. Um through all of this stuff. So recognizing their earlier vulnerability that had led to the whole issue where, where Borte had been captured and all of that fun stuff by the Mercads, um, Temujin decided to join with the larger group that had coalesced around his friend Jamuka in the large and fertile Korkonag Valley between the Onon River, which is where Temujin grew up, and the Kerlen River, which is further up on the Kerlen River is where his family had been staying. So the two Andas or Blood Brothers, decided that it was as good a time as any for a sort of uh, renewal of vows. So for the third time in their lives, the two men swore undying loyalty and love to one another. This time, they did it in a public ceremony that was witnessed by all of their followers, which at this point is not that many, but considering the fact that Temujin grew up eating rats in the wilderness uh, and has basically just been like, he's been a slave, he's been all kinds, he hasn't had an easy life. Um, it's been pretty not that chill. Yeah, not super chill. Any followers is kind of a, kind of an impressive amount of followers, you know? He's yeah. a, he's a real, um, he's a real uh, entrepreneur in that sense, mm -hmm. you know? Um... So the ceremony takes place on the edge of a cliff under a beautiful tree, and the two men exchange gifts of horses. Remember, what are the Mongols like, Evan? Horse milk. Well, just horses in general. Everything yeah, about them. The milk is especially. They like to get drunk on the milk, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but they also exchange two beautiful, like, golden silk sashes. And I know we talked a little bit All right, about that's, that's pretty swag. Yeah, it's great. I I would give you a gold sash if I had with, one. With 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 this golden sash, I now pronounce you my good buddy. Yeah, my my <laughs> good my goodest of buddies. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You you are now awarded the honorific GB. Yeah, dude. Good buddy. Gold belt, good buddy. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you know, we talked before about like the importance of giving clothing as gifts uh in in mongol culture but also the importance of um the sash or belt as a symbol of a mongol man's independence and strength um like remember when when temujin was was begging the mountain for guidance to you know how to find his wife it's in part three folks go listen to it he takes his belt off and hangs it over his neck as a symbol of of subservience to to 
Burkhan Kaldun, the holy mountain. Um, but also, your clothing holds on to your smell. And smells are very important to the Mongols. <laughs> it's, it's only smells. Yeah, it's, not, it's not only smells. What? It's only smells. It's okay. It's only smells. It's nothing. Only the smell. Yeah. There is nothing. It's only the smell. It's way more important than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know that um, Rocco Sofredi would have made yeah. it as a Mongol warrior it, with that kind of attitude. No, yeah, no. It's not only smells, Rocco. <laughs> Rocco? It can't all be smells, Rocco. Um, so after the celebratory feast, the two men further sealed their bond of brotherhood by going off away from the camp and sleeping in their own little yurt together, or gur, um, which is the Mongol term for it, but it's a yurt. A lot of people know the term yurt. Yeah. Um, under one large blanket, just as young brothers do when they're children. Um, so it's a, it's a true symbol symbolism of that brotherhood. Now I know what you're thinking, what I was thinking. Um, so I did a little reading on it. Um, cause I was thinking, Ooh, they went off as brothers. Like, were they smooching? Do they smooch? Cause I don't fucking yeah. know. You know, what kind you know? of brothers? Yeah. No. So I'm sorry. Are they kissing brothers or are they just like, yeah. you know, <laughs> just brother brothers? Are they, uh, are they yurt brothers or are they yurt brothers? Yeah. Yurt brothers or yogurt brothers, you know? Um, I haven't read extensively about the relationship between the Mongols and homosexuality, um, enough to like do an episode on it, but I know enough to know that it is definitely not something anyone back then, uh, would have ever publicly admitted to. These are very macho, macho men in, in Mongolia at this point. Very small, very sturdy, yeah, macho some of the men. Spartans and they were sucking as fuck. That's what I'm saying. Like, the, but these guys had like a and very, they were quite like, open about it. These guys had a very... And actually, I don't think the Spartans did either, because they used to make fun of the the other Greeks. I mean, for that. they did. I mean, and then you had the Every, sacred. Well, here's the thing: the- everybody does it. I'm not making yeah. the case that there were no gay Mongols. There definitely were. There's gay everyone. Gay yeah. is a thing. Gay happens. You know what I mean? People are yeah. born gay. There definitely were gay Mongols. I but guess more what I'm talking about is like the cultural thieves. approach to homosexuality by the greater. Oh. Mongol culture was was a negative one. They did not uh, paint it in a positive light. Even in places like Japan and, like you said, in ancient Greece, like there was a very a much more accepting or just at least a different view of it. Um, not not so in Mongolia. Uh, they were not chill with it. Um, Genghis Khan eventually would make it illegal to do gay shit, and uh, that's a real bummer. But you know such as life it's been happening for a long time must not have had a very good experience in the yurt with his brother yeah maybe he he maybe he didn't maybe that's why fuck this shit man make this shit illegal man (laughs) Um, this isn't even that cool man this isn't even chill man it's supposed to just be like a brother nap you know (laughs) (laughs) um but also certainly nobody would have ever insinuated that so like in the in the secret history it would have been a death sentence to be like who knows what they did in there wink wink like no yeah. you don't even suggest it so there's no what real happens in the yurt stays in the yurt exactly lads. exactly um just a little aside i was curious so i thought maybe listeners would be curious uh, now, during this period, Temujin began adapting away from the hunter-gatherer subsistence lifestyle that his family had long espoused uh, towards the relative abundance of a herding lifestyle practiced by richer groups of Mongols on the steppe and then other steppe tribes. So keep in mind, uh, Temujin growing up is what they would have called a forest or a mountain Mongol. Uh, he did not grow up on the open grasslands and had very few horses and was eating weasels and shit and like... So the Mongols, in in the the most narrow sense, because we've also talked about what is a Mongol. It's pretty fishy, but the Mongols, in the narrowest sense, being like the people that that Temujin derives from, um, 
are poor and fairly wretched by the standards of, of these other steppe peoples. Um, so now he's, he's, he's adapting to learn the ways of a herder. Um, he's got way more access to food, milk, horses. He's gaining weight. Everybody's putting on muscle. His brothers are strong. His wives are healthy. They're having healthy babies. Everything's looking good. Um, so among this would include intimate knowledge of the care and management. And I just liked this of the animals known to the Mongols as the five snouts. So the five snouts are camels, goats, sheep, Cows and yaks, which are the same thing to the Mongols. They, they, you know, just one thing. And most importantly, horses. Uh, so most of these animals, specifically camels um, and cows and yaks, uh, would do physical work. Um, and they're all used for food and for milk. But horses are definitely the, the uh, I think the author of the book I'm reading mostly for this, uh, refers to them as the aristocrats of, of the five snouts. Uh, because all they're expected to do is to carry men. Um, and women uh, no, like they don't use them for plowing they don't really do a lot of farming but they don't use them for like hauling stuff yaks pull the carts horses never pull a cart never do any of that shit they um, do they do they do get some milk out of them though, yeah they, oh they milk them ferment that shit they milk yeah. them um and when they get old they will also eat them and wild horses they will also eat um so you know it's but they're but they are ever eaten horse no, no, there was a, when I was in Italy a few years ago in Venice, there was a, um, <clears throat> a horse meat, uh, salumeria, which is like a place just for making like sausages and salami and stuff. And it was all horse. Um, and I guess that's still relatively easy to find over there. Um, and yeah, in it's, France it's too, the only but... thing in Europe. I remember one of the most wretched, I've never had it, but I've I remember one of the most, I remember one of the most wretched, uh, uh Reddit posts I've ever seen was some dude who bought some horse meat and microwaved it from raw and then also threw some like like little like fruit candies onto the plate yeah because he was eating them mm-hmm. and then so it was just like hard it like melted and hardened fruit candies on a plate with the most rancid looking meat you will ever see and they ate it that is you know it's like um milk steak from always sunny your finest Microwaved milk steak from raw jelly beans raw yeah um yeah that's heinous whatever like what a waste <laughs> of probably delicious horse meat and imagine yeah, being a it. horse that died for that you know i know he's like why don't you just send me to the glue factory yeah it would have been just some weird like polish dude microwaving your meat oh he was polish raw. yeah that makes sense i, I mean doing, probably i've been doing I don't a lot remember, of reading i'm just gonna about, guess um, yeah eastern european history and the poles are the poles are freaks yeah they're freaks um yeah. <laughs> uh, so during this period of learning to herd and getting used to some abundance and security for once in his life, Temujin also fully accepted his role as a warrior, um, which he's especially keen to, to kind of adapt to now that he's proven to be pretty naturally good at it. Um, nobody wants to be a warrior if they suck at it. But if it turns out that you're like pretty sh- fucking good at it, like there's cleaving, yeah, yeah, dude. cleaving dudes in half from the collarbone <laughs> they're actually not doing a lot of that and we'll talk a little bit more about mongol warfare yeah but it would be cool it would be yeah of course it would be awesome <laughs> like but the mongols are weird they're weird with like a fucking scimitar or something you just flop. they do have swords but they prefer not to use them it really like it oh. grosses them out 
to to yeah. fight up close. They really don't like yeah, it. Yeah, they don't like blood. They don't like blood. They don't like to be touched by it. They don't like to smell it, to see it. They, they don't, don't think like it should to touch the it. earth. Yeah, it's, oh. it's 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 they're very 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 super. For people that really liked killing, they didn't really like one of the most yeah. um I, uh, I I'm not sure iconic is the right word, but one of the things that is most associated with death yeah. and killing, which is blood, yeah. they weren't big fans, but they no. were big fans of the process. Yeah, and um they that's I that's a large part of why I think I think that the bow probably developed before that mythology, but I think that that sort of syncretically developed along with their adaptation to be exceptionally good ranged fighters. Yeah. Um, is that they started to like glorify that because like distance from the blood was good, you know. Not being able to see it is good. So as Jamuka's Onda, uh, Temujin was of immediately higher status than someone joining a group like this would normally be, who would be considered sort of subservient and a follower and would have to like really earn their earn their way up to it, um, <clears throat> up to being somebody respected. Um, but because he was Jamuka's Onda, he's immediately of higher status than someone else would be. Um, however, as time passed, Jamuka begins to assert a degree of dominance over, t- uh, over Temujin that we have come to learn uh, he is not always super good at dealing with um mm. you remember what happened with his uh, older half-brother Begter? 
Yeah, he started I to... I remember what happened to Begtear. Yeah. Go back and listen to part two of the series if you want to find out what happened to Begtear. Let's let me give you a hint. He's not in the story ever again. Yeah, you're never. He's he's. <laughs> it's only ever going to be like a. Hey, remember Begtear? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's done. <laughs> and that's what that's how Genghis handled problems when he was fucking twelve. You know, imagine how he's going to deal with it as a young man. Uh, so even though the two were blood brothers, and they actually, I, I know I've mentioned this um, in earlier episodes, they are distant cousins by blood. Um, their relationship is actually more complicated and it gets more complicated, um, now that they have this sort of working relationship. So Mongols had kinship hierarchies, uh, that they called bones. That's the English term bones. Um, your close relatives with whom intermarriage was forbidden, which would be considered incest, were your white bone relatives. That's the white bone lineage of your family. Your more distant relatives with whom you could intermarry are the black bone uh, relatives, black bone lineage of your family. So that's like your distant cousins, your third cousins, your whatever. So while all lineages of a family or a clan can claim common ancestry, uh, your line of descent from that ancestor and whether you were of the white or the black bone lineage within the complicated web of descent uh, matters tremendously. So Jamuka and Temujin both descended from a single woman, uh, but from different husbands of hers. Jamuka descended from her first, and according to his line, uh, the rightful husband, who was a herder. He was a step guy, um, and the men of the step obviously think that other step guys are better than forest, dirty, hunting Mongols. Um, and he was her arranged husband. And then Temujin descended from her second husband, who's the only guy that I've seen a name for, who was called Bodonchar the Fool. Okay. Uh, <laughs> All right. I'm all right. I'm officially gonna say that I am Team Bondanchar. Yeah, no dude. matter what, Bondanchar the fool is that's my guy. So Bodonchar uh, kidnapped and raped this woman and murdered her husband. Okay, uh, so uh, I'm gonna. All right, so I have uh, I have a mea culpa to give. Uh, recently in this episode, you heard me say that Bondanchar the fool is my guy. I may have misspoken, but I still like his name. Not my guy, though. Uh, yeah, he's he's not. You know, whatever. He's a he's he's bought on char. You know, it's classic. Bought on <laughs> he's char. a fool. It's classic bought on char to do that. Well, yeah, he's <laughs> he's kidnapping and uh, kidnapping, and raping again. That bought on char. Oh yeah, that's all. It's his mo. Yeah. Um, so because Jamuka was descended from the first husband, and because that husband came from the steppe like he did, he was able to claim that he was of the white bone lineage, uh, relegating Temujin to black bone status and gradually enforcing an older brother role in their blood brotherhood. Now, none of this is an exact science, but this like bone lineage thing is is largely like a social currency that Mongols use to establish hierarchies in situations exactly like this. So it's always open to interpretation. Um and the idea being that if Temujin were to leave and create his own group, he could theoretically begin claiming white bone lineage status. But because he's subservient and whatever, like he's he's currently considered black bone, you know. Yep. Uh, so mm -hmm. Temujin had shown that, as I said, while he could fill the role of a respected subordinate, as he did in his relationship with Onkan, um, he would not tolerate being treated as a, an inferior. Uh, and that's just what Jamuka had started to do. So one day in 1181 CE, the simmering discontent would come to a head when uh, Jamuka decided that it was time to leave the group's winter camp and head for literal greener pastures for the summer. 
Now, Temujin has always been given pride of place at Jamuka's side, um, at the head of the baggage train whenever they travel. This time, however, they're riding up there together, and Jamuka announces that he's going to split off ahead with the horse herd to find suitable grazing land for them. And Temujin is going to stay behind and take command of the livestock herd and find somewhere, you know, less important for them to, to graze. Yeah, he's going to go do the bitch shit. Yeah. Again, <laughs> what's more important than horses? Not much. So this is definitely a slight. Or at least that's how Temujin is yeah. interpreting it. Now, and honestly, <clears throat> I think he might be right though. Yeah, yeah. Given the context we have, if I think, yeah, I think, I think he's, I think he's getting big boy. I think, he, I think he's getting big time here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so maybe Jamuka was sensing, you know, Temujin's growing popularity among the people in the group. Uh, maybe there was some mutual resentment. Maybe there'd been a fight of some sort. Who knows? Uh, but Jamuka was was definitely like putting Lil Bro in his place. And so Temujin decides to fall back, and he consults his mother, Holun. Now, obviously, he, he knows this is an insult, or he's taking it as an insult. But Jamuka's his blood brother, and, you know, after all, hadn't Jamuka really stepped up and provided for them? And, you know, he's asking his mom, like, well, is it really so bad for me to just kind of, like, take this one on the chin and accept that I'm, like, the livestock guy today, whatever? And then as they're talking, Borte, his wife, overhears, and she rides up. She's furious. She's like, obviously... You're not going to be the fucking livestock guy, you yeah. dummy. I didn't marry no fucking livestock no. boy. No. <laughs> She's like, fuck that. You're my man, and my man doesn't ride with the fucking... My man's a horse man. He's he a horse no man. fucking cow man. He doesn't ride with the goats. You're not riding yeah. with the goats. We're leaving. Yeah. And that's why we like Borte. She's ride or die, man. She, she, she stands by her man. So when the train stops to camp for the night, Temujin and his family and followers, they slip off and they take their animals with them. And in addition, many of Jamuka's followers, who had, in fact, as suspected, come to really like and respect Temujin, they decide to join him. So a sizable chunk of the group splits off. Uh, Temujin feared pursuit, so they they made great haste, uh, but none was forthcoming. Jamuka was almost certainly upset, but he probably had also seen this coming, um, and so he lets Temujin go. Uh, but the two men will remain rivals for, you know, 20-plus years after this night, and uh, the salad days, as it were, are officially over between these two. Salad days are over, brother. So over the next several years, both Jamuka and Temujin would build names for themselves, and their followings are going to grow. Neither could truly dominate the steps, especially without first clashing with the other. Uh, but they both clearly had ambitions to conhood. Hi, Sancho. In 1189 CE, the year of the cock, a 27-year-old Temujin decided that it was time that he had the title of Khan. He had proved himself as a warrior and leader, and he had a large following, a uh, growing following, and he wanted to be named the Khan of the Mongols. And he figured it was time to hold a Kurultai. Uh, a Kurultai is uh, a meeting of steppe peoples to decide something big. Generally, um, it's called by an important figure, um, and a person's presence at the Kurultai, just showing up, counts as a vote in favor of whatever's being proposed, which is announced when, when the meeting is called, and your absence is, is, is noted as a, a vote in opposition. There's no official tallying. Um, a lot of times after the big important ones, and more going forward as these become more institutionalized, as the uh, the Mongol Ulus becomes like a more established nation, um, they will start taking tally of like people who were there, or whatever. But traditionally, it's sort of just like literally like a show of hands. It's about that uh, serious of a of a thing. But they will decide really big shit. I mean, it can be life and death stuff. 
So in this instance, Temujin called everyone uh, to the shores of Blue Lake at the foot of the heart-shaped mountain, which is where the Mongols hold their kurul ties, and asked them to confer upon him the title of Khan of the Mongols. All of the Mongols? Khan of the Mongols. No, all of the Mongols go to this mountain, no matter where, because it's a big fucking place. Yeah, but keep in mind, the Mongols, as we're talking about them in this instance, are a relatively small ethnic yeah. group. Uh, shortly and over the course of this episode, we're going to see many other much larger groups be absorbed into the nation that will come to be known to the world as the Mongols. Um, mm-hmm. And and that will we'll, we'll establish that pretty clearly. But right now, this is like the true original OG Mongols. Who yeah. it's, it's actually a pretty small group. And their homeland okay. is relatively small. What we now know of as modern Mongolia is sort of the whole area that we're talking about today. Um, mm-hmm. And that's actually the homeland of like like four big tribes and a, and a few smaller tribes um mm-hmm. most of whom are not mongols they're very closely related but they're not mongols mm-hmm. so um this is all going to sort of evolve into like from from the mongols being a small group among many to being sort of like the dominant culture of this whole region mm-hmm. so <clears throat> he figured either doing this uh calling for this kurultai declaring himself khan either this is going to attract enough of jamuka's supporters to just make him too weak to say anything and, and he'll just be silenced or at the very least it'll attract enough of them that it will force a battle and they can just decide it the old the old way on the battlefield yeah make jamuka a jamok yep either way it's clear that the step is no longer big enough for the both of them yeah so temujin wants leadership over the mongols uh but he also recognizes that he's still subordinate to onkan of the Karyid tribe to the south who are who are still big and strong and so he, he makes sure before he does this to send an envoy to the Khan, it's expressing that um, by calling this Kurultai, he in no way means it as a challenge. He's not intending to um, try to dominate the steppes as a whole. Uh, his only goal is to unite all the Mongols under his rule, and he will then be under Onkan's rule. Um, and Onkan says, cool, sounds fine. Doesn't seem to be too worried about it. Um, and the thing is, he, he had also sent similar kind of missives to Jamuka. So he is telling, uh, he is supporting Temujin's claim to be the Khan of the Mongols, but he's also not saying like, you know, hey, Jamuka, you got to bend the knee. He likes that they're both kind of at each other's throat. It keeps them both weaker and it allows him to still stay in a place of power. Um, you'll come to find that Onkan, I, I mentioned in previous episodes that there's three major players on the step. There are the Karyids under Onkan. There are the Tatars under their own Khan, and then there are the Naimans who are under the um, the Taiyang Khan. And the Naimans are definitely the largest of the three and probably the most militarily powerful. And they're not going to come into our story until later. But the Karyids are not the most powerful of all these groups. And so they really want to make sure that their subordinates stay their subordinates. <clears throat> so... <clears throat> Temujin got enough people to join the Kurultai, and as I said, Onkan isn't mad at him and sort of gives him tacit approval. So he starts calling himself the Khan of the Mongols, even though there are a big chunk of Mongols uh, under different subgroups who they're actually still siding with Jamuka on this, and they don't they don't like the idea of this young upstart, especially one of such like a base lineage claiming to be, you know, the big boss. Still, um, this will resolve itself eventually, and in the meantime, Temujin's going to set about instituting the first of many major reforms that are going to mark his rule as Khan, and we're going to kind of space those out over the remainder of the episode as they crop up. 
So traditionally, a step chief's camp of Gurs, uh, his center of support, the, the, the camp that moves personally with him throughout the year, is called his Ordu, which is where the word horde comes from. So we'll use those two terms interchangeably, Ordu, Horde. It's the same thing in this context. Uh, the leadership roles within the Horde would generally fall to those with close ties of kinship to the Khan. However, uh, Temujin has seen what treachery Kin is capable of and decides that it's going to be better to give leadership roles to those who proved most loyal and most capable, whether or not they were Kin. So he doesn't right. exclude All his right. Kin. Temujin's been playing some Crusader Kings. Yeah, dude. Temujin knows you, what's you good. You don't want those ambitious uh, vassals. No. You want the content ones. Yeah, and those ones who, who remember the favors you've done for them yeah. and, and stick close to you. Content, and then you give them stuff, and they're like, why would I go against my liege? Oh, He's dude. so swag. Temujin's stats in Crusader Kings would be sick. They would be sick. He he he's so good at all. He is of in Crusader shit. Kings. Oh, he's in Crusader Kings too. You can you can he can crop up in Crusader Kings three, but I don't think they've worked him into it as like an mm -hmm. event yet. Yeah, um, there was the Horse Lords DLC for Crusader Kings uh, two. Yeah, and yeah, you can play as Temujin. I'm not. I, I think you can play as him. I never I never did the, the con stuff in that game, but he definitely appears and can just fuck you up in Europe. Yeah, he's um he he. I hope that he makes an appearance in three because. Um, yeah. He, he's just he that'll be my favorite um he's, he's your um he's your senpai he is he's my he's my history uh my my history rock star yeah um so do you remember uh two names burchu and jelme maybe not but um we mentioned at the end of part three that they're not related to him they're the, the first two non-relative followers that he has um, they've both been with him since day one. Um, and so he actually, he gives them both the, the highest promotions of anyone at this point. He, he's like when you start in Crusader Kings yeah, and you, and you always have like a couple like courtiers or whatever yeah, that are like, they've got some like decent stats or whatever. And then you start giving them stuff and they become your ride or die barons, yeah. you know? Yeah. Those, <laughs> that first wave of people in CK, yeah. like they always stick by you. Yeah. It's their sons that you got to worry about. Yeah, oh, yeah, their sons. Ugh, yeah. Sons, sons, sons. Sons, yeah, sons are the bane of a, <laughs> of a healthy dynasty. They really are. Kings. They're the basis <laughs> and the bane. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> um, the arsis and the thesis. Absolutely. That's funny. Uh, so they both become his, like, sort of, like, second-in-commands, his direct assistants. Um, oh. And on different missions and stuff, one or the other will the always be dogs. with him. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yeah. Jelme in particular is going to last a very long time and be yeah. one of the most high-ranking Mongol warriors, bar none, for his entire life. Um, yeah. Borchu, I don't, I don't know for sure. Um, I haven't gotten that far ahead, or I don't remember. But yeah. um, <clears throat> his brother Kassar, who was his younger full brother, uh, was put in charge of guarding the camp. Um, and his uh, slightly younger half-brother, Belgute, Begter's little brother, um, who has been tight with him ever since, even though, you know, Kassar and, and, and Temujin fucking murdered his older brother. Um, yeah. He, he stays yeah, loyal to like, Temujin. I didn't really like him anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, Begter like, sucked, I think, for everyone. Yeah. And Belgute was kind of <laughs> like, listen, man, I don't, hey, I don't know. It's, it's, you you got to do it. Hey, a lot of things happen to a lot of people, yeah. you know? <laughs> you know. Better hope I'm not one of them, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I'll he's left in sure charge of, of guarding one of the group's largest herds of horses, which is also a really honorable thing. Um, Temujin also creates an elite group of 150 men to serve as his most trusted bodyguard, 70 at day, 80 at night in shifts. And this tradition, or some version of it, is going to continue well into his reign. 
in this way, he has really effectively started to centralize his rule while also beginning to divide authority up among different family units and reducing the likelihood of like dynastic infighting. Um, so at this point, Jamuka is still refusing to acknowledge Temujin as Khan of all Mongols, and he has plenty of supporters around him kind of helping him make that a solid case. In 1190, uh, Jamuka finds a pretext. There's a little fight between some of his followers and some of Temujin's followers, and he's like, that's unacceptable, and so he launches an attack. And Temujin finds out about it in time, and so they go to, they go to, they fight each other in a, in a pitched battle. Um, and they both have their, their full armies, which at this point is probably like just a few hundred men each, you know, and they go at it. And Jamuka actually gets the upper hand, and he ends up routing Temujin's army. And we'll talk a little bit more in depth about how these battles go. There probably weren't a lot of fatal casualties before an army uh, elected to give up in the field. Um, this isn't a highly populated area, and lives are really precious. And so if it becomes clear that your side is probably going to get beaten, then um, surrender and flight from the battlefield is is a survival tactic. And so it's a, it's a valid part of step combat. So when, when a, an army loses in this context, at least at this point in history, um, this will not be the same because Temujin is going to realize that this is not uh, a suitable way to achieve victory, and he will very quickly realize that it's better to kill them all. But um, at this point, it's, it's not necessarily, it doesn't mean that like all his men get killed. So even though he wins, Jamuka wins, um, and this is supposed to make him look really, really good, but the problem is he does some shit afterwards, and we're not 100% sure. The, the secret history tells us what they say he did. It's probably exaggerated. He does something afterwards. Secret histories are always have a certain way about them. They do. Because uh, this isn't the only book from the only period of time that's called The Secret History. Right. As a matter of fact, I have another one over there that I want to do a couple episodes on in the future by Procopius. Mm-hmm. About uh, the, Justinian. The oh, Justinian, that's right. We've talked yeah, about yeah. that on the show. Um, yeah. So, he does something after this battle that freaks everyone the fuck out. And <laughs> it, 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 it's a major tipping point. And Jamuka plays himself here. So, according to the secret history, he has one of the captured leaders of Temujin's Horde um, beheaded, which is already goes against their blood taboo. If you're going to execute someone, you're going to do it in, a, in an honorable way. You would do it in a way, like you'd strangle them or something. You would do it in a way that doesn't draw blood. Um, so he cuts his head Roll off. Roll him and up then, on the carpet and stomp on him with your horse. Yeah, I don't know if that ever actually happened, but that is one of the one of the myths about them. About, uh, from Iraq, about, right? It's about, uh, uh, I think that's actually about Tamerlane. Uh, but I don't know. He was uh, claimed to be a descendant. Of, was uh, it from Baghdad though, or around there? Like maybe. it was around like modern day Iraq, I believe. Yeah, I remember hearing it, but I don't remember One of the, the details. Em- emirates, to, I believe. To claim. Yeah. Um, yeah, same. Honestly. So he takes Could be he, wrong. he takes the head and he has it tied to his horse's tail, and then rides around the battlefield, spraying the guy's blood from his neck hole everywhere. Um, so there's a couple things here. A, it's more blood grossness, which the Mongols don't like, and the blood's dripping on the earth, which is pollution, which they also like, really. So it's don't just like. like a bunch of like big like Mongol dudes saying that's like, oh, no, don't, oh, Jamuka. Oh, and man, also the tail of the horse is like some fucking sick shit, Jamuka. <laughs> the tail that's of the some horse fucking is, sick shit, man. The tail <laughs> of the horse is the dirtiest part of the horse, and so that's also taboo. Um, they have a lot of taboos. And yeah, so he's yeah he's just being a fucking certified sicko right. But here. that's also why like it's this could be like exaggerated, yeah. you know? Um, maybe he just like mistreated his prisoners in a way that made people think whatever. But anyway, this is the story. So it, it it's very reminiscent of Achilles dragging Hector's body around the gates yeah. of Troy. Like it's like you already won. You don't need to fucking yeah. <laughs> act like you've been here before, you know? Yeah, you don't um, need to desecrate the goddamn bastard's body. They also it was just claim. 
it was an honorable battle. Right. And they also claim that he took 70 male captives and boiled them alive in large iron cauldrons. And boiling someone Doubt. was said to be one way to, to destroy their soul uh, yeah. and utterly obliterate them from existence. And so this is also, like, just crazy. So whatever he actually did, it was enough to freak everybody out. And so even though he won... Those are some big fucking um, cauldrons if he's going to do 70 of them. Right? It's a lot of water, too. Yeah, who's carrying those around? So even yeah. though <laughs> even though he won... Uh, when Temujin starts regrouping, he finds that, oddly, his numbers have actually swelled um, and continue to swell considerably. So even though he's the loser here, this isn't how it's supposed to work. Like, there's no. something about uh, about Temujin that's really attractive to people. Um, and people start to think, oh, maybe he's actually got, like, some kind of, you know... In China, they call it the Mandate of Heaven, but they have, like, similar theories in a lot of East Asian countries. Like, maybe he's got some divine... The Mandate um, of Tengri. Right. Right to rule. Yeah.
So anyway, they break off their fight. A couple years go by, and in 1195, Ong Khan comes calling. So the Golden Khan of the Jurchids, who rule the land to the south of the Gobi, and they'll come back in later episodes, um, but for now they're sort of just dipping their their little gilded pinky rings into step politics. Um, they, they rule south of the Gobi in modern-day northern China. Uh, they had decided that the Tatars in the steppe area were getting too strong. And so they asked if Ong Khan and the Karyids wanted to help in, uh, in, in raiding them and, and hurting them a little bit. Um, and this is something they typically do just because it behooves them to keep all the tribes to their north fighting each other. Because, again, mm. same reason that Ong Khan wants Jamuka and Temujin fighting. The Jurchids, who are a bigger player than anybody, they have their own dynasty. They have cities and shit. They want all of the northern tribes in general to be fighting one another. And uh, Onkan thinks that sounds great, because I don't know if you remember, but he hates the Tatars, and he's been fighting them since forever. So ignoring the fact that the Jurchids could just as easily have done this in reverse and asked the Tatars to help uh, destroying his own people, uh, he summons Temujin and his growing Mongol horde, and in 1196, they launch a massive raid on the super-rich Tatars. Now, uh, it turns out that he'd gotten really fucking good at this shit, uh, Temujin had. And the Tartars, who had once seemed so powerful and who had killed his father and who had actually given him his name, he was named after a Tatar that his father killed, Temujin. The sauce is so good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> turns out now they seem like easy pickings all of a sudden. So Temujin is just trucking through them. And he finds himself a couple things. He's in awe of how rich they are. Um, and he realizes that the further south you get, the, fur the closer to China you get just the more awesome shit you have and so he's noticing they that like some shit going down down there they're capturing kids wearing nicer clothes than any mongol has and there's specific mention he 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 captures this little kid and the kid's got golden earrings and a golden septum ring and he's just like what the fuck even their kids wear gold like china what's the deal He's he, like, man, I grew up eating fucking rats. Yeah, dude. <laughs> so he he also makes note of what I just talked about, which is he's watching how the more powerful tribe, the Jurchids, are playing Ong Khan and the Tatars off each other, just like Ong Khan is playing him and Jamuka off each other. And he starts to see, he's like, fuck, man, we're part of this, like, really eternal cycle of just that happening and unless somebody steps in and puts a stop to it like that's all my people are ever going to be is pawns in a bigger power struggle and you know eventually it all just leads to what china or somebody but we certainly aren't some cocksuckers making a lot of money yeah. off of us fighting yeah, yeah. he's <laughs> like we're, we're we're somehow just not sitting on top of the pile and i want a pile uh so he's got this huge influx of cash after this campaign against the Tatars. And he's got he's suddenly like flush with resources. And so he decides he's going to consolidate his power back home. Um, and then maybe he'll have the clout to finish what he started with Jamuka. So he decides that it's time that he paid the Jerkin, who are a sub-tribe of Mongols, uh, a visit. And saw what uh, starts stepping them, get, getting them stepped in line. Because uh, they've been jerking him off a little bit. Yep. Get step in line, <clears throat> yep. jerking off. Um, so the jerkins were, as I said, they're a group of Mongols, and they had actually initially pledged to support Temujin uh, leading up to this Tatar campaign that he just got back from. However, uh, they decided to be fucking dicks about it. So shortly before the campaign was announced, Temujin had invited them to a feast. And when they showed up, they all got drunk on uh, free IRAG, Temujin's drink and food, and then they started a bunch, of, a bunch of fucking trouble. So this is actually, this is a cool story. So 
remember, Temujin had made his brother Belgute uh, one of the guys in charge of guarding the horses, right? So a drunk jerkin warrior decides that he wants to steal one of these horses. And so Belgute happens to be there, and he chases him off, and he's trying to grab him and beat him up. And he gets stopped by this huge jerkin dude, this jacked-up dude known as Buri the Wrestler. And he pushes, he puts his hand on his chest, and he's like, nah, man, you're not fucking, you're not fighting my, my boy today. Now, Buri the Wrestler, believe it or not, got his name because he's a very, very good wrestler, which is uh, another favored Mongol pastime to this day. And a lot of uh, the best sumo wrestlers of all time come from Mongolia. In fact, it was said that he was undefeated. No one had ever out-wrestled Bori the wrestler. Well, Belgute might have been smaller, and he was definitely not undefeated. Uh, but fuck Bori the wrestler. He's not putting his hand on my chest. And so Belgute starts stripping off his shirt. He's like, all right, man. I guess I'm going to fucking fight Bori the wrestler. And Bori the wrestler is like, uh uh-huh. Nah, man. Like you're beneath me. You're a you're a fucking you're a Borjigid. I'm not fighting you. Um, so even though Temujin's making a name for himself, his measly lineage is basically outranked by everyone else on the step. He comes from like dead last Including this place. Greasy bastard. Yeah, and this dude's like, I'm not gonna roll around with you. <laughs> and so he does something really insulting as he draws his sword, which he's not even supposed to have because he's at yeah. a feast. And he just reaches it out and cuts Bo- uh, Belgate across the shoulder. Not like a hacking slash, just like reaches it out and fucking cuts him. Just, just like, like, oh, yeah. Keep He's your just distance, buddy. Him. You're just like a dog. I'd cut you down in the street. I wouldn't fight you like a man. I would I would yeah. just cut you down. And so Belgate is like shocked. He's like, are you fucking, are you fucking kidding me right now? <laughs> and all the other Mongols see this and a fucking brawl breaks out. The fucking dugout's empty. And uh, the bullpen's empty. Whatever it is. Is it the dugout's? Yeah. I don't fucking know. Well, yeah, the dugout is empty, and then the best part is all of the loser uh, relief pitchers have to run from the bullpens, but the bullpens are almost always right next to each other. Yeah. So it's both bullpens just running at the same speed. I always want to see the bullpens just just go to fuck, like, do, like, Have a separate fight, like, off. Like, in the outfield, just, like, fucking just uh, beating the shit out of each other. Nobody, it's be all so ritualized, cool. you know? Nobody wants to actually fight. Yeah, everybody just runs out there and, and kind of, like, pushes a little bit, yeah. you know? Yeah. Except for, like, the few times that it goes insane. And then there was that one time where, uh, what was it? Um, uh, Johnny Cueto, uh, pitcher for the Reds, he starts getting crushed by literally both entire teams. And, like, kind of, like, panics. Like, I think anybody would. If you have, like, fucking 50 other humans that are starting to crush you, and he just starts kicking people with his cleats, like right in the head. Gross, dude. <laughs> That's fucking gross. I did fifty people just like crushing you into a wall. Horrible. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah. Well, so this most people don't have their weapons, um, yep. and so this turns Poor into cleats. a food fight, which is kind of like in baseball. But they're just like, but not like a not like a chill like a. Disney movie food fight. This is like a fucking. What? They're like hitting each other with the pans, not so much the food. Like they're much, trying to much kill like baseball. There's the famous Boston Red Sox. Here comes the pizza clip. Uh, oh have yes, you, ever- you showed <laughs> me. Yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> All right, and here we go. Here comes the pizza. <laughs> fucking just see a single slice of pizza arc through <laughs> the people in the crowd and hit this dude. Oh my god. Um, yeah, that's so great. Everybody needs to go look at. Here comes the pizza right now. So take a break. Go look at it. Go to YouTube. Search Here Comes the Pizza, Boston Red Sox. The schedule tonight in the majors. It's all right after the game in high definition on Nessa, Noah, and Don. Between innings, we did some investigative reporting. 
on who uh, and what was thrown at that gentleman. And that gentleman has been ejected, but it was an ugly, ugly sight. And I don't know why it was necessary. Now watch. I can't circle. I don't have my telestrator today. But why? here comes a pizza. See it? <laughs> oh, jeez. Highly unnecessary. Guy with the Patriots jacket. And, of course, he's been asked to leave the ball game for ruining a good piece of pizza. <laughs> Now okay. that you're back. Now that we're back. So we're going to fast forward a few weeks after the great food fight incident and the great insult of Belgute, which really is dog shit. And uh, the Jerkins get summoned to go fight the Tatars. And Temujin's waiting for them, and he waits for them for like three days, and they just don't show up. And so finally he's like, fuck it, I guess we'll go without them. They're not that significant anyway, but they were supposed to be here. So whatever, we'll deal with them later. So he's, yeah, he's going to put a little, yeah. he's make and here's a little the thing. check. You'll start to realize... Temujin's good at that. He remembers yeah. these things. And yeah, he's got he's got a little notepad. He waits his couple days, and then he yeah. just puts a little check. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he re- he he remembers. Uh, so he goes off to fight the Tatars, and you know is getting all this golden shit. And while he's gone, to add insult to injury, the fucking Jerkins take their opportunity and just kind of raid his camp, and they steal a bunch of his horses and you know women and shit that are there. And they, I guess, they sort of figure like, well, he's going to come back so rich from this this mission with the Tatars that he won't miss it. He won't remember. Uh, well, another check. Yeah, he remembers. <laughs> so he gets home, and uh, it's Jerkin time. Yeah. So. Obviously, he crushes them. That's actually not that interesting. There's not much to tell. He goes in and he just fucking he just he just murks the jerkins. He's murking yeah. the jerkins. What's interesting is that afterwards he realizes that he he he's had this idea and he wants to do something different. So this is another of his big uh, his big reforms here. So instead of just taking some prisoners, looting their stuff back, and then leaving the jerkins to their own devices to rebuild and then maybe seek revenge, whatever, Temujin calls another Kuril time. Uh, this time. What he wants to do is put the Jerkins on trial for treachery, uh, the nobility, execute them, and then absorb the tribe into his own tribe. So he does that. He puts them on trial, and then he has them, like, hanged or strangled, whatever. Then he adopts members of the clan into his own tribe, encourages intermarriage, and then has his mother adopt an orphaned Jerkin boy to be raised as her own. And this sort of becomes one of his signature moves. Uh... But the capping moment is is the best part of this little segment of the story. So Temujin celebrates this new unity among the tribes by throwing another feast, right? With everybody present, all the Jerkins, his tribe, and they're all celebrating. They're one big family now. Mm-hmm. So at this feast, he doesn't forget what started this big brawl to begin with. And so he orders a wrestling match between Belgute, his brother, and Buri, the wrestler. Rematch of the century, right? Mm-hmm. Well, here's the thing. Buri is definitely the favorite to win. I mean, he's a big, bad motherfucker. And Belgate is just a normal dude. I mean, he's scrappy, but he's no Buri the wrestler. But Buri is so scared of Temujin after all this, and he's so confused. Like, why didn't I? Why didn't I get fucking murdered with everybody else? Like, whatever. But he doesn't want to push his luck, and so when he's in the fight, he allows Belgute to to throw him to throw him to the ground. And he's like, "Cool, haha, great, good win, man. Got all me. good and well, right? Wrong. You don't fuck with Temujin. You don't fuck with his brothers." You don't fuck with anybody that's his friend. You don't do it once, and you do not ever get a chance to do it a second time. So Belgute gets on top of Buri, looks at his brother. Temujin gives him a nod, and Belgute fucking jumps up and drives his knee into, Bel- into Buri the wrestler's back and snaps his spinal cord and paralyzes him. And then while everyone's watching, he just fucking drags the paralyzed Buri the wrestler to the perimeter of the party and then just leaves him there to die by himself. <laughs> and then everybody just goes back to their feast, and Temujin's just looking around. He's like, yeah, so... 
everybody saw that, right? No. Yeah, don't don't cut my brother, okay? <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> and so that's it. That's the feast. Um, <laughs> so, isn't that awesome? I like that signature move. That's like a, that's like a Mortal Kombat move. Yeah. Fatality. Yeah. He has him fucking break his back and then just drag his. Yeah, just drag him still to the living edge and then paralyzed parties around him off to yeah. the edge and just leave him there. Yeah. You know. Ugh. Brutal. Um, so after the Jerkins are defeated, Temujin moves his main camp south into their territory, which is nicer territory, more grass, whatever, and it's, it's further south along the Carolan River. And so he finds some primo land on what uh, what they would call in, in their language is, is an island. There obviously weren't a lot of true islands in the Mongol steppe, so their term for an island was land between two rivers, right? Where two rivers are close enough that, like, the land has water on both sides. And... Um, so he finds a good spot. It's the right distance from water. The Mongols don't like to live so close to water that it can be polluted by their waste, by their privies, by their blood of their animals, any of that. They're really big on that. Um, so about 30-minute walk from water is ideal for them. Um, they can face south so they get the sun, and the cold wind from the north is blocked by, by their, their, their gurs. All kinds of little things. It's kind of a perfect spot. So he sets up camp there, and this uh, right now is a pretty small camp, but will eventually become uh, his his capital, which is known as Avarga, and uh, will remain Temujin's center of operations from now until the end of his career. Um, so all of this is going on. <clears throat> That's just like a little aside. He founds what will become what we would think of as his capital, but it's it's only ever going to be a tent city. Keep in mind, Temujin will will go on to be a great conqueror of cities and a, and a great master of 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 lands um and only ever sets foot in one city that he conquers and it's said never spends a single night asleep not in a tent he's he's just okay. he's about that life your life yeah dude so so he will always have his capital be like a tent encampment but so all this is going on and he still hasn't dealt with jamuka so Jamuka has become uh, the main sort of rallying point for all of the white bone noble lineages who hate all of the changes Temujin is insinu- uh, instituting. And yep. eventually in 1201, he decides to call his own Kurultai in defiance of both Temujin and Onkan. And they decide that he's not just the Khan, he's a Gur Khan. So Gur Khan is like a, like a super Khan. It's a Khan of Khans. So they're basically saying our Khan's better than Temujin. He's, he's Temujin Khan, but this is Gur Khan. He's an even better Khan. It's like going Super Saiyan. Exactly. Super Saiyan. Super Saiyan. Super Gurkhan. But Jamuka chose this title not just for one upmanship, though that was certainly part of it. The last Gurkhan, the last man to hold that title, had been Onkan's uncle, who had ruled the steppe before Onkan betrayed him and killed him and all of his other uncles. Um, And so you'll maybe remember that this this war, this uh, rebellion of Onkan, was the war when Temujin's father, Yesuge, had first joined his Borjigan Mongols with the Karyids and sort of set all these events in motion back 50 years ago or whatever. So he's not just challenging Temujin, uh, he's now challenging Onkan too. Because if Onkan doesn't have the right to be Gurkhan and he's saying that he does, well, that's not good. Uh, Oh, and guess who are on his side now? Do you remember the Taichiud clans from last time? The yep. people that had enslaved uh, Temujin as a kid after they abandoned his family and all that jazz from episodes 81 and 84 or whatever. Well, Onkan is pissed. And so he actually goes and he says like to Temujin, leave it to me. I'm going to lead the men myself. And so he musters his own army and Temujin serves him as a general. And they're going to go to war against Jamuka. 
So the idea in big Mongol battles was to avoid actual bloodshed and waste of life um, and just get your enemy to give up with a show of force. So one way to do that is to show up with more men, right? But also, um, once the armies are kind of arrayed across the field from each other, what you do is you set up spirit banners, which we've discussed in in earlier episodes, um, of your earliest ancestors. And generally speaking, there's some sort of shared ancestry between groups. So it's like if Jamuka is facing you and he looks across and sees the, what he believes to be the literal spirit of his, you know, thrice great grandfather across the way and all of you are offering prayers to it. And what's he supposed to do? Go to war against you? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yep. And the Mongols, uh, by and large, believe in this shit. So that really fucks with them. Um, they also have shamans who kind of flock to different charismatic okay. leaders and they start performing rituals to control the weather, to turn the, the, the tide of battle they predict who the winner is going to be um and the more that shamans have you know quote unquote evidence of them succeeding in these things in the past the more of a reputation they get and the more uh the more they come to be kind of respected as actually being able to enact these things is there any uh heresy going on what's heresy again that's the entrail reading. So what they do, they Any don't. Harrispects? They don't read entrails because that's that's gross to them. But oh, what yeah, they true, yeah. what they do is they will take uh, the shoulder bone of a sheep and they will burn it in a fire, and they will read the cracks yeah. that form in the shoulder bone. Okay. So that's that's hey, their man, that's fucking swag too. It's super swag. Uh, but yeah, they don't like the guts thing. They won't they yeah. won't look at the guts like the Romans. Let us read the sacred goat shoulder. Exactly. Um, there is one such shaman who I'm just going to mention because he will become a bigger part of our story later. His name is Teb Tengri. And well, I've actually heard of. Yeah. The name is the name uh, rings a bell, right? Um, yeah. So he's present at this battle. This is like the first time he shows up. Um, but he won't be a big deal. We won't like really dive into who Teb Tengri is until later. Um, is, he, is he like Temujin's Merlin? Yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, I think that he's less... Like his Rasputin? Yeah, maybe he's more like his Rasputin. He becomes his... No. And even then, Temujin's not one to, like, really ever be influenced by someone like that. I think he just becomes one but of his, like, entourage. he likes a weird guy to hang out with. Yeah, he's just, like, yeah. the weird guy in his entourage. Yeah, this is my Wook friend, Teb Tengri. Exactly. Also, yeah, sick he, name, yeah. Teb Tengri. Like, yeah. That's a Star Wars no. name. It's a great name. Yeah, um, yeah, he's got dreadlocks, you know. He's uh, always wears tie dye. He um, smells. He's got, he's got an open air tortoise and a kiddie pool in his living room. <laughs> um, it does a lot of ketamine. Yeah, yeah. it's my buddy Teb Tengri. Yeah, for sure, look. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so ultimately, the goal is to get members of the other army to defect to your army and then just chase the smaller army away. Um, oh. So the shamans are up there trying to summon weather and whatever. And it it helps that at this point, just before the battle, a massive thunderstorm breaks out, uh, which, of course, is attributed to the magic of the shamans. So this combined with all the chanting and the spirit banners and the battle cries, it's just too much for Jamuka's army. Huge chunks of them sort of switch sides at the last minute. And Temujin, his policy has always been to accept any defectors to his side, provided there's no evidence that there was treachery involved in their leaving. So... Obviously, leaving itself is treacherous, but as long as they didn't, like, set the camp on fire or murder their... You know what I mean? Any display of that yeah, type of like, treachery... Uh, harass the baggage train. Yeah, and there's actually a good example of this at the end of this story, but anything like that, and he, he was more likely to execute you because he can't trust you. If you'll do that to your last boss, why wouldn't you do it to him? You know, yeah. situations like this, though, it's it's what, what he would consider, like, uh, honorable treachery, you know? and it's, yeah, it's honorable defection. Exactly. So as long as you Sorry, do it I the got right scared way. by the thunder and I decided to go to you. Yeah, and he's like, 
And rightly so. Thunder's spooky. You yeah. made the right yeah. choice. Here is uh, my, uh, would you like some uh, complimentary ketamine and tortoise watching with my wook friend, Tem Tengri? This is my friend, <laughs> Tem Tengri. Yeah. Tem Tengri's just fucking like, just like drooling on himself in the corner.
So the remainder of Jamuka's forces split up. Uh, Onkan himself pursues Jamuka, and Temujin, Temujin is ordered to pursue the fleeing Taichudes, who are heading towards, where else? The Onon River, which is where Temujin is from. Nice. And so he's just like, this is sick. I'm going to fucking get my revenge on the Taichudes now, and I'm going to do it on home field. Very excited. Really very excited. But it won't be that easy. So eventually, Temujin catches up with his enemies, and there's a huge back-and-forth firefight. So Mongol warriors, as I said, they avoid fighting up close uh, because they hate blood. They don't want it on them. They don't want to smell it. They also believe that breathing the breath of your enemies uh, can pollute your body and pollute your spirit. So they're doing charges on horseback. They'll also set up barricades on foot, and they'll have, like, you know, like a cowboy-type firefight, but just with bows, and they're just, like, leaning out and shooting at each other. Um, and so they fight all day like this, and, and it's not as much of a route as Temujin is probably hoping it's going to be, but he is slowly but surely gaining the upper hand until nightfall, when both camps set up uh, camp. During the day, Temujin had caught an arrow grazed to the neck, which at first looked more serious than it was, but it wasn't a major injury. No artery was pierced, whatever. So he, uh, but he's bleeding. And so they take him back to camp. And what they would do in, in situations like this, that oh, battles went more than one day. I, I know. I'll get there in a second. Sorry, I just read ahead. I know you did. So what, what they do is they actually <laughs> would camp, dude. they would camp very close to each other. And this allows them to keep an eye on each other. It's just the it's just the custom. So if a battle goes longer than a day, the two armies will actually camp like within sight of each other. Um, and so while they're we're setting up camp, somebody has to see the Temujin's wound because a infection is very likely. These are not the world's cleanest people, uh, but also they are known to use poisoned arrows. So um, just to make sure that he's not getting an infection, that he's not poisoned, Jelme, his his friend and second in command. Uh, lays beside him all night and just periodically sucks his neck wound, uh, sucking the blood out. However, he obviously doesn't want to spit it out and pollute the earth uh, or to let the enemy see that his master's bleeding as much as he is. So he swallows most of the blood. And he only stops swallowing the blood when he is literally too full of blood and starts spitting it back up. So he starts spitting the blood out on the ground, which is disgusting. But it's also, I mean, hey, man, that's friendship right there. Jelme is actually a, a army hammer. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Time so, traveling, yeah. Um, <laughs> so sometime in the early morning, like before before dawn, Temujin kind of comes to, and he's, he's asking for Irog, Irog. He wants a drink of Irog. And Jelme is like, man, we're in pursuit. Like, we don't have Irog. And he's like, but you know what? They've actually got, like, a wagon train over there. Maybe they have some. So he does something incredibly ballsy and kind of funny. He gets totally naked, and then he just walks over to the enemy camp. Uh, Temujin or Jelme? No, Jelme. Temujin's, like, kind yeah. of in bed. He's lost a lot of blood. So Jelme yeah. walks over to try to find him some Irog. And, and so, he just gets naked. Yeah, and, and so like, the reason he does this, he figures... So nudity is... is Believe it or not, taboo among Mongols. They don't like to be naked in front of each other. Um, so, especially in a situation like this. So, he's assuming that anybody who sees a naked guy walking through camp is going to just figure, oh, that's one of ours. He's just on his way to the bathroom. And they'll avert their eyes and they won't look too closely because they don't want to embarrass him. And anyone who mm -hmm. does look closely enough to realize that he's not a Taichi, that it's Jelme of the Mongols, is going to say, what the fuck is going on? And he's got a story concocted. He's going to say, man, would you believe it? They fucking, they fucking were clowning on me and they fucking got me naked and I fucking, they kicked me out of camp. 
So I ran over here because you wouldn't treat a guy like that. And this is such a weird thing to do that the Taichus just probably would have believed him. They would have been like, fuck, yeah, that sucks. All right, you want to fight for us? So, but right, well, whatever. Can you nobody put some fucking pants on first. <laughs> nobody stops him. He finds some some fermenting curds and he just scoops them up and he just fucking walks back. And he puts half his clothes back on and he's feeding you know some some fermenting curds to uh, to Temujin who finally like kind of wakes up yeah. and uh, he looks over and he sees fucking Jalmay, no shirt on, blood dribbling down his face, spoon feeding him fucking fermented cheese curds. And he looks at the ground and there's blood all over the ground. And he's just like. Ugh. And uh, what he actually looks up and says, he just goes, "You couldn't spit that somewhere else." <laughs> That's like his like whole reaction. Jelmay just had like one of the most harrowing, <laughs> the nights. weirdest nights of all time. And Temujin <laughs> is just like, "Thanks, but like, gross." You know? Could you do it differently <laughs> next time? Yeah, like, uh, not my favorite. So, but but the thing is, even though his initial reaction seems like he doesn't care, um, he never forgets this. And as I mentioned yeah. before, Jelmay will forever get like pride of place among his his generals yeah. he gets the best commands he gets sent on the most honorable missions every opportunity to rise through the ranks gets promoted he's set for life and this yeah. is one of the main reasons um temujin is extremely loyal to his men and in return his men are extremely loyal to him um there is not a single case of one of his generals or one of his his officers ever betraying him, ever switching sides, ever doing, ever going against him. Um, literally flawless loyalty record because he's got this this great record of taking care of the people that take care of him. So Temujin has defeated the Taichiuds, and he does the same thing with them that he did to the Jerkins. Kills the leaders, integrates everyone else into his own tribe. Done deal. Oh. And do you guys remember when he was a slave and there was that poor family and they helped him and they fed him and they took the thing off his neck, the Kong, and they and they gave him like one of their few horses and sent him on his way? Well, he finds them and he says, you guys thought I would never fucking pay you back, but I will. You guys are great. You're no longer slaves. You're free. Here's some horses and some fucking money. You're all good. And if you want to stay with me, that'd be great because I really like you guys. And so he sets them up really nicely as a reward for uh, helping him when he was a little guy. All those years ago. Yep. Meanwhile, over on the other front where Onkan is chasing Jamuka, that slippery snake, Jamuka, gets away. He does not get captured. But the Taichiuds are dealt with. Yep. And once again, Temujin comes away from a conflict just a little stronger than he was before. All because he's doing this thing where he's absorbing tribes, which is new. That's People weren't doing that before. Maybe you'd make yep. them subservient, whatever, but he actually breaks down their, their structure and just makes them part of his own tribe. So in 1202, uh, Onkan orders Temujin to go back and finish what he'd started against the Tatars, this time by himself, because Temujin's strong enough that he could probably just mop up the Tatars by himself at this point. And so he's just cruising. He's raid after raid. He's just All he does is win at this point. Um, but he figures that this is a good opportunity to enact some other ideas that he's been having. So he notices, and I kind of mentioned this before, that victories in step warfare are very rarely final. And there's very rarely large casualties or any real change of the power balance. Because one side will just kind of run away. And as soon as they do, the victorious side will just stop pursuing them to loot their camp and take as much as they can. Right? And that's, it's really all about the loot. Mm-hmm. Well, Temujin mandates that from now on, looting is going to wait until total victory over your enemy has been achieved. Further, once the looting is completed, all loot is to be brought to him to be divvied up and then passed out among people equally, depending on their actual contributions, not just in that battle, but to the army as a whole. So say you got stuck guarding the baggage train and you didn't get a chance to loot, 
you're still going to get some loot. You know what I mean? They pull tips. Exactly. They're pooling tips. Everybody gets taken care of. And this is based on how a kill would be divvied up during a hunt, right? And that's his experience as a child. He says, doesn't that make more sense than the way you fucking weirdos do it? If everybody helped kill the deer, just because you're not the one that actually shoots it doesn't mean you don't still get a piece of the deer, right? So, you know? So, after the first raid, he tries this, and there are some men who disobey his orders. And so, he punishes them pretty severely. He has them stripped not only of all their loot, but of everything else that they own, and then just sends them packing. And says, that's it. You guys have nothing. Go home. And so, he means business. And he divvied up all their shit among the rest of the people. So, people learn very quickly that he's a man of his word, and if you do things the right way... He will absolutely make sure that you're taken care of. But all wealth flows through the con. Yeah. You're good to him, he'll be good to you, and he really will. He's not a fucking But if cheat. you act like a little pussy bitch... You're going to get got. You're going to get treated like a little pussy bitch. Exactly. And and that's the thing. He's, he's in some ways, he's very much like an enlightened despot in that he demands total subservience. But if he gets it, he, he takes care of you. And yeah. he really will treat you with honor and respect, etc., etc. Yeah. So once the Tatars are defeated, Temujin wants to integrate them the same way that he's done with the Jerkins, the Jerkins and the Taichiuds. But the Tatars are not Mongols, and they're way bigger. There's way more of them than any other group that he's tried to do this with. There's more of them than there are Mongols, frankly. And so he calls another Kurultai, and it's agreed that they're going to deal with things a little more harshly, and they're going to do things a little differently. So every Tatar male who stands taller than the linchpin that holds up a wagon wheel is killed. Now, that measurement, that height, is a traditional mark of manhood in this culture. Um, And so, whatever. That's, you know, anybody who's old enough to hold a sword, it's another way of looking at it, whatever. But they all get killed. Um, But after that... So me being uh, 4 foot 10, I'd I'd probably probably be spared. Yeah, you'd be fine. Yeah, nice. You'd be fine. And they would also no. probably see your mustache. Well, I don't know, the mustache, though. They'd probably assume you were a fully grown man. You'd have to shave. <laughs> I know it's been a while since you've shaved your mustache, but you'd have to do oh, it. Oh, it's, I've had this for like a year and a half or something? Yeah. yeah. Oh, well. Um, <clears throat> I don't want to do that. Maybe it's just worth dying then. Yeah. Uh, but after this, the the Tartars are still, they're taken in, not as slaves. Um, and they are they are fully integrated into the tribe. And he has his mother adopt a Tatar boy, and this time he himself marries two Tatar sisters, Yesui and Yesugen. Ooh, sister wives. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Borte is always going to be his main squeeze. Um, truly, like I think that he actually loves his wife, which is kind of crazy. At least as much as like the fucking most murderous, vicious bastard in human history is capable mm-hmm. of an emotion like love. Um, it seems pretty clear that he was quite fond of Borte. Um, but for political reasons, and he totally fucks them and has kids with them and stuff too. For political reasons, uh, he's going to start practicing polygamy starting now. Also but worth he's noting. He's got main bitch and he's got side bitches. Yeah, absolutely. Also worth noting, uh, in a lot of older texts, the term Tatar is synonymous with Mongol. So you'll see that a lot in your reading older histories. The coming of the Tatars under, under, under Genghis Khan, whatever. Um... This is because the Tatars are, as I said, a much larger and actually a much more well-known group uh, originally, um, especially in Europe. And after this point, so many of the the later Mongols are actually ethnic Tatars uh, that the two names sort of become interchangeable to foreign writers. And so you'll see that a lot. It causes a lot of confusion when you're reading older histories of the Mongols, that you'll see the word Tatar used. Um, At this point, they become part of the same polity, but ethnically they are still technically distinct. Um... 
they speak mutually intelligible languages, things like that. It's like saying you're, you know, Sicilian rather than Neapolitan, right? Technically, there is a, definitely a distinction there, but but close, you know, ethnically yeah. and culturally. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so then, in twelve oh three, yet another innovation comes. Uh, Temujin reorganizes his entire new host into new units. Uh, and it's totally divorced from previous family and cultural ties. And it's all based around little groups of 10 called an Arban. So 10 of his warriors uh, would live together in, in, a, in a cluster and fight together in a small unit known as an Arban, 10 men. Uh, it's forbidden to ever disagree and to fight against one another. Uh, you can't leave another member behind in battle. The Arban is like a self-sufficient little family unit. Um, and their families kind of go with them, right? So they're obviously, they have to move their yurts to live in close proximity. They fight in close proximity. Um, and from among the 10 men of an Arban, uh, default leadership would fall to the eldest member. Um, but the members of the Arban are free to elect another leader if they decide to at any given yeah, point. Yeah, if, if the oldest guy is just like, I don't want to do that. I don't got it in me today, boys. Yeah. I'm a little old. I'm, I'm down to follow. Yeah. They can they can elect someone else. Yeah. Um, so ten Arban will will group together to form a Zagun, which is a hundred men, and yeah. then ten Zagun form a Mingan, which is a thousand men. Ten of those come together to form a Tumen, which is an army of ten thousand men. The leader of a Tumen is personally chosen by and answerable to Temujin. So Jelme, as an example, is going to become the leader of several Tumen. He's going to lead armies of ten thousand men into battle. Now, no man could desert or change his group under penalty of death, effectively fracturing the old hold that tribes and kinship held. Uh, it should also be noted that when he could, he, he asked that his men, when they're putting together these units, try not to, like, needlessly separate brothers from one another and fathers from their sons. If you can, you know, there's obviously something to be said about, like, close kinship ties, but yeah. it's not guaranteed that you're not going to get split up from your brothers or whatever. You know what I mean? They'll yeah. do what they can. We'll so see by the time can do exactly, so by the time that he does this, now that he's absorbed the Tatars and whatever, uh, the number of men at his disposal has shot through the fucking roof, and it's estimated that he has ninety-five mingan, uh, nominally nominally a thousand men each, um, but due to fluctuations in actual unit size, some of them weren't at capacity at this point. It's estimated that he probably had around eighty thousand warriors at his disposal, which is fucking crazy. I mean, I mean, that's a huge growth from where he was earlier this episode. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Earlier this episode, yeah. he had, like, ten guys behind him. Yeah. Right? So he's... And this is over the course of, of just about 20 years. He's yeah. gone from being that guy. Now he's in his early 40s, and he's, yeah. he's pulling numbers. He's leading 80,000 men when he can yeah. muster his full strength. Um, so since all of society is organized around the horde, these military changes effectively reorganize his entire new tribal society. Now, instead of using an ethnic name for this group, Temujin begins referring to them as the people of the felt walls, referencing the fact that they all live in Gurs, right? So that's their common thing. We all live a steppe lifestyle. We're all steppe people. And so that's what he starts calling them, the people of the felt walls. Lastly, <clears throat> at this time, Temujin closed off his homeland around the headwaters of the Onon River at Burkhan Kaldun, uh, making it taboo for anyone but his, his own little Borjigan clan, his immediate family, uh, making it taboo for anyone else to go there. And that's going to remain in effect for the next couple hundred years or longer. Um, the original heartland of the Mongol homeland is taboo. 
Um, that's why nobody knows where, where Genghis Khan is buried to this day. It was a closely guarded secret. Um, they say the Soviets tried to find it because they were worried that it would be like a center of, you know, political dissent when, when Mongolia was brought under the fold. Um, but they don't think they were ever successful in uncovering the tomb of, of Temujin. <laughs> close of the episode here and i understand this has been a lot to 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 take in hopefully you've broken this up into chunks but it's now 1203 temujin is totally ascendant onkan is getting old everyone knows that he's got to punch out he's going to pass the torch but nobody knows who's it going to be is it going to be temujin is it going to be that fucker jamuka who's still out there somewhere running around now obviously onkan and temujin teamed up against jamuka but things have changed temujin is starting to look like a real threat 
it might be enough to make Jamuka and Onkan reconsider. Maybe they're friends. You know what I mean? Even though Jamuka says he's the Gurkhan, maybe Onkan says, all right, you can be the Gurkhan when I die if you help me fucking take out Temujin. Who knows? But also, Onkan has, like, his own little shitty fucking fail son named Sengum, who has done nothing, doesn't have his own followers. Basically, he's just riding his dad's coattails, which it doesn't really fly in step politics. You can't really be, like, a, you know... Um, a primogeniture son, you know? It just doesn't work out that way. But he's making a play. He's saying, well, my dad is the... Listen, man, nobody really cares, but... Uh, so Temujin decides that he's going to just make make shit happen. So he proposes that his son, Jochi, marry one of Onkan's daughters. You may as well make it legit, right? I'm your adopted son. Why don't we make the family ties legit? And then we'll just put a neat little bow on all this. I mean, look, I'm winning like a motherfucker out here. You may as well make me your successor. Well, at the shitty fail son Sengum's urging, Onkan refuses in a really dickish way. And he sends a letter off and he's like, fuck you. I'm not doing that. Y you might be a big shot now, but I remember when you were just a little fucking nothing and you came to me asking me, Onkan, please protect me. Onkan, please protect me. And yeah, you've been useful. You know, you've really helped me out. But you're presuming a little too much now. Asking your little shitty line to marry into the line of the great Onkan? And pretty much as soon as he sends that off, he's like, oh, fuck. I shouldn't have said that. Because <laughs> at this point, Temujin's got 80,000 fucking guys behind him. And he's looking like a big bad motherfucker. And Onkan's looking at himself and he's like, you know, I've always been the big swinging dick around here. But all of a sudden, I, I actually don't know if I could fucking take Temujin. I don't know if mm -hmm. I could do it. Like, toe to toe, he might, he might be able to take me. Yep. So he decides that he's going he's gonna to resolve this problem by trickery and not by direct conflict. So he sends another letter out as quick as he can and says, you know what, actually, I thought about it. Let's do the marriage. I'm sorry I was so hasty. And Temujin believes him. So he takes just a little entourage, maybe like 100 guys or something, and he sets out with his family and Jochi, and they're going to go and they're going to they're gonna do the wedding. Meanwhile, Onkan assembles his entire army, and he knows that Temujin is just going to come with a small retinue of guys, and they're just going to engulf them, and they're just going to erase Temujin from the planet. And then hopefully that'll just break up his whole coalition and uh, he won't have to worry about it anymore. So about a day out from the festivities, Temujin receives word of the trap. And he's now within capturing distance if they come at him in a gallop. So he's like, fuck. And so they scatter. He just has to run to the hills. He sends Jochi one way. He takes a group of guys and goes another way. Uh, you know, the women go another way. Everybody goes off in different directions. And this is like the ninth time in his life that some like noble asshole some like high-ranking jerk has like pulled some treacherous shit and next thing you know temujin's running off into the fucking hills you know with yep. his tail between his leg and he's like but hey, i got an eighty thousand strongman army back home i don't want to do this anymore this shit sucks yeah and he's just thinking to himself like i guess once you're a fucking rat boy from the woods you're always a fucking rat boy from the woods yeah and so he and his little group of guys it's 19 guys all together they uh they arrive at the muddy shores of lake baljuna unsure uh if news has already reached his his group that he's run away like a coward and if that's mm -hmm. gonna if that's gonna break up the whole coalition that he's worked so hard to build so while they're there and they're just trying to regroup they're all starving and his brother kassar who is with him uh looks up and spots a wild horse and he shoots at it and he kills it and mm. it's just interesting they, so they 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 don't have the stuff to cook it uh in a way that's not gross so they cook <laughs> it in a really gross traditional mongol way so they skin the horse, they cut up all the meat, they make a bag out of the skin, and they fill it with water and chunks of meat. And then they take a bunch of horse poop and light it on fire. 
and they heat up rocks from uh, from the the lake, and they get those really hot, and then they drop them in the water in the bag and just fish them out and add new rocks over like the course of two hours, and they slowly boil the horse meat inside the bag made of skin with and hot shit rocks. Yeah, with hot shit rocks in a big stew of of dirty muddy lake water, and then they eat that, and so <laughs> they're they're eating their their meal, and. Uh, they're drinking muddy water out of this lake. And Temujin's like, you know, this is the last time I'm doing this. And he looks at the guys <laughs> with him and he's like, he looks around and he's like, man, there's 19 of us here. We're from like six different tribes. I did that. I united all these people. He's like, yeah, I, I believe in Tengri. There's a Christian over there. There's a Muslim there. This guy's a fucking Buddhist. And they all follow me. Nobody else has ever done that. And he looks at them and they swear an oath to each other. And he's like, this is the last time. We're never doing this again. It's, it's all or nothing. If you guys are with me, let's, let's fucking do this thing. Let's unite all the fucking peoples of the steppe and put a stop to this because this is the dumbest shit ever. And they're all like, yeah. And they toast with the mud. And there's one sicko there, though, that's like, I, I eat like this every night. <laughs> <laughs> like, and they toast can we, with the... Can we finish the horse meat, though, please? <laughs> they definitely finished it. Yeah. Um, and they, but they, they, they make a toast of like dirty, muddy water as like a symbol of like on this fucking mud water, we we promise to never do this again, basically. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, so he formulates a plan, and he sends the men riding off in all directions to assemble his forces uh, if they'll come and they're going to unite and they're going to ride on Onkan and they're fucking they're just going to crush him that's it yeah. there's no other way to do it they got to hit him hard they got to hit him fast and he can't see it coming mm-hmm. so as all this is going on Onkan stupidly figures that that's the end of Temujin um, he scared him away he ran off everybody probably heard what a pussy he was his whole coalition broke up he hasn't really done anything to confirm this but he decides he's going to celebrate his massive victory over, over Temujin by throwing a feast uh, is a little overconfident but um, he also assumes that Temujin by now has probably run off to the east and is probably like days and days away surprisingly though uh, basically nobody defected. Everybody really likes Temujin. And so, like, close to 80,000 men are converging on him and forming up on the plains, and then they start hurtling towards Onkan's camp at break, breakneck fucking speed. So they send riders ahead with fresh horses so they don't have to stop and rest. Like, once their horses get tired, they just get on new horses, they just keep riding. And before you know it, they take kind of a little back road around the mountains that won't be guarded, and before Onkan even realizes that Temujin isn't defeated, he's literally yeah. outside his fucking camp with 75,000 men. Yeah. And they basically just, they just fucking, they just swallow them. Um, this, this super fast uh, turnaround from like flight to invasion is what's called the lightning advance. It's, it's this kind of miraculous turnaround. Oh, the lightning, you say. Right, like, like blitz. Yeah, um, like a blitzkrieg, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So <clears throat> they fought for th- they fight for three days. Onkan puts yep. up a fight, but as they're fighting, more and more of Onkan's men just de- defect to, to Temujin. And by the end of it, it's not so much that they were all defeated as they just became one force. And the few people that refuse to submit just run. Um, Sengum, who's the fail son, that you know is the reason that this whole thing happened anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. He runs off and basically just gets abandoned by the few people with him in the Gobi Desert and dies of thirst. Uh, (laughs) Jamuka uh, who had who had joined up with Onkan now happy that Temujin was defeated he fucking books it and heads off to the lands of the Naiman tribe and Onkan follows him Um, 
So now the last of the three great steppe tribes left after the Tatars and now the Karyids have been destroyed is the Naiman tribe, who are probably the biggest and baddest of all of them. Um, Temujin realizes if he's going to actually do this thing, he's going to have to go to war with the Naiman. He's going to have to hunt down and make sure Onkan's dead, and he's going to have to fucking get rid of Jamuka. And then he's got to beat the Naiman, who have the biggest army of any steppe tribe. And uh, that seems daunting, but he's done tough shit before, and uh, no time like the present. Mm -hmm. So to get everyone on board with the campaign against the Naiman, Temujin starts having rumors spread around. Uh, he tells everybody that Onkan, who, who probably has died at this point, there's no real mm -hmm. word from him, he was pretty old, uh, but they, he spreads rumors that upon arrival at the Naiman camp, nobody believed that this like solo old man was the great Khan of the Karyids, the great warrior Khan. Um, so they claim that the Naiman queen had him beheaded and then was displaying his head in her gur and would have her daughters sing around it and have people play the Morin Hur, which is the horse head fiddle, um, and make offerings to the dead Khan and sort of mock him as if he were still alive. And then her husband, the Tayang Khan, came in and saw the head and freaked out and smashed it with his feet. Um, so this both, it tells folks two things. One, Onkan is dead and you don't got to worry about him. But also it makes the Naiman out to be these like sacrilegious savages who like, if we don't do something about this, these guys are just going to be desecrating heads and shit. And that's not cool. We don't like that. Yeah, you, so, you, uh, you've seen the movie Hereditary, right? Yeah, not okay. I definitely got some Hereditary vibes from that big, scene. Big time, big time yeah. Hereditary vibes. Um, he also starts telling people that when, when Jamuka got to the, like, how would he know this? But when Jamuka got to the Naiman, they were so scared at his descriptions of us that they're already shaking in their boots. Meanwhile, there are contemporary accounts that the Naiman around this time capture a Mongol outrider who's, like, trying to ascertain their numbers. And they see him, and he's riding the skinniest horse they've ever seen. And he's dressed in, like, rags and looks like such a complete joke that rather than kill him or even really do anything with him, they just, like, pass him around from camp to camp as, like, a joke. Like, yo, these are the guys that are going to come and try to fuck us up. Like, look at this. Pipsqueak, he sucks so Look bad. Fucking Don Quixote over here. And so here. Temujin hears about this, but <laughs> and he's like, he's pissed about it, but he um he doesn't want to uh, admit that he's like embarrassed or that you know his tribe is like kind of ragtag looking. So he starts this second you know rumor that like oh everybody's afraid of us and our and our brutal appearance. And as they get they get closer to um, the Naiman encampment. What he starts having his guys do at night is instead of each guy lighting his own campfire, he has each guy light like four or five campfires so that on the hills in the distance, it looks like a fucking monster army's approaching with more fires than stars in the sky. And so the Nymen are having like psychological warfare. They're like, oh my God, this guy's coming with like the fucking force of heaven. Where did he get all these people? And meanwhile, he doesn't have all those people, but... He is sure as hell going to show up ready to fucking fight and kick some ass. Mm -hmm. So finally in 1204, um, the, the, the ultimate battle against the Naimans happens. Um, despite his smaller number, Temujin unveils three new strategies that he's been drilling his men on. Because he's realizing that like they have all these tactics that they use in hunting and stuff like that. But when it comes to fighting, everything kind of just evolves into like the same basic pattern of like little like hit and runs. And then eventually if one side seems bigger, they all just run away. But he's like, we're going to stay in formation and we're going to start trying some actual like cavalry tactics here. Because they won't even know what to expect. Nobody fights this way. So let's just do it. And so <clears throat> the first of the three is the tumbleweed formation. So when he's coming at the Naiman, basically tumbleweed means that little Andas, the separate groups of 10 guys, they all kind of split up. 
and they start sending out little groups like just from random directions and they'll charge in and they'll kind of shoot some arrows and then that little group of 10 guys will will sort of splinter off into like like a firework so instead of leaving together they come in in one group they fire a bunch of arrows and then they all go off in different directions and then they regroup regroup like further away so the enemy has no idea where they're being hit from and they have no idea where the main enemy force is so they're confused right off the bat meanwhile the bulk of the force is moving up behind them so then mm. He uses what he calls his lake formation. Now, there's like a long line of men, like 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 four lines deep, let's say five lines deep, but it's spread out really thin. And so what they do is they come at the enemy and the first row of guys will fire and then they'll shift to the back and then the next row of guys will fire, they'll shift to the back. So it looks like a rippling, rolling wave mm -hmm. of people. And that's kind of reminiscent of some of the old... Um, Greek and Roman formations yeah, and the, I was family, thinking the, the phalanges of, and whatever. Yeah, of, um, uh, Philip's, uh, Philip's uh, uh, phalanx. Yeah, the Macedonians, yeah, they would like mm. shift shift the, um, they would just yeah, call them shifts or something. Yeah, it would look like the lawnmower. Exactly. Um, so they're basically doing that, but on, on horseback with cavalry, which Old takes a lot of, more. takes a lot of control over the horses not to just be like trampling each other. Um, and so this forces the Nyman to spread out into a long thin line to match the long thin line that the Mongols are sending at them. Yep. And then once they're spread out, he sends up another single signal and they shift into chisel formation. So instead of being a long thin line, all of a sudden they turn into a narrow, very sharp, long wedge. And they just drive full speed through the center of the Nyman line and then divide them in two and then just push outwards. And they just fucking yep. swallow them up. And so, like, literally, he comes in, and just with these three relatively simple tactics, he, he defeats a way larger force and makes it look easy. And just, like, fucking... And everybody's like, holy, holy shit. Like, this dude just yeah. did this. He just fucking beat the Naimon. Like, and so... Um, so, Tayang Khan, leader of the Naimon, they hunt him down and they kill him. And his son runs off to the land of the Black Kitans, who will come up in a later episode. Jamuka flees the battle once again. They never catch Jamuka, right? Um, but he will never again. He doesn't go out with a bang. He goes out with a whimper. Uh, he, he runs, runs off, and he ends up becoming kind of a bandit. He has, like, a few little groups of loyal guys around him. Um, but over the next, like, year or so, they get so... They're, they're basically on the run. They're fugitives. They know that Temujin's after them, and his power at this point is basically absolute in this region. And... Um, eventually his own men turn on him and they capture him and they, they bring him to Temujin as like a peace offering for amnesty. And Temujin, that's exactly the type of shit he doesn't like. Uh, mm -hmm. He has them all executed. Yeah. And he embraces... He was a consul of Rome! Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and so he, he has... Uh, he embraces Jamuka as a friend. <clears throat> yeah. And I actually just want to read because there's a direct quote. Um, in the in the book, um, so rather than seek revenge, he he offers to reunite, and he says, "Let us be companions. Now we are joined together once again. We should remind each other of things we have forgotten, wake each other from our sleep. Even when you went away and were apart from me, you were still my lucky, blessed sworn brother. Surely, in the days of killing and being killed, the pit of your stomach and your heart pained for me. Surely, in the days of slaying and being slain, your breast and your heart pained for me." And Jamuka, they say, was, was moved by this. And, mm -hmm. uh, and he responds and says, We ate the food that is not to be digested, and we spoke to each other the words that are not to be forgotten, while sharing together the quilt under which we slept. 
Jamuka then blamed their separation on the influence of another unnamed person. We have been provoked by one who cuts across us. We have been goaded by one who came from the side. Um, and then they basically give like well, the secret history makes it seem like he gives like some big long um, confession, uh, almost like he's like saying like oh like I was. I was crazy to go against you, whatever. But rather than asking for, for mercy, um, he begs him for death. And he's like, you know what? I, I, I've betrayed you too completely. You should kill me. <laughs> and So this probably didn't happen, but this is probably like a later attempt to justify the killing of his bro- blood brother. Um, yeah. All that he asks is that he be killed in an honorable way uh, with his blood not staining the earth or being exposed to the sun in the sky. So he's asking to be like strangled. And yeah. then, this is another weird request, but he says, if you place me up somewhere high among the bones of my ancestors, he says, kill me and lay down my, my bones in the high ground. Then eternally and forever I will protect the seed of your seed and become a blessing for them. So legend says that Temujin buried Jamuka in the golden belt that he had given to Jamuka when they swore the oath of Andas. And so they say that he, he killed him and, and buried him somewhere secret at the top of a mountain and that Jamuka's spirit watched over his line for the rest of their days. Now, my guess is that he probably was like, sorry, buddy, that's one chance too many and fucking killed him. And yeah. then that was that. But, um, yeah, so <laughs> Jamuka's done. Um, and so, yeah. So... <laughs> so Temujin's first friend also became his first rival and now he was no more and in addition no other power on the Mongolian steppe can stand in his way the Naiman and the Karyad and the Tatars they've been absorbed just like all the rest Temujin called the most important Kurultai ever in Mongol history the next year in 1206 there was feasting there were games Shamans came from all over a region the size of Western Europe to sprinkle mare's milk to the heavens and on the earth. Millions of animals grazed to provide milk and meat. Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, Tengrists, they gathered as one and offered prayers to the endless blue sky. Temujin rejected the ancient title of Gurkhan, instead declaring that from now on, the name that he had already been given unofficially by many that followed him would become his official title a name that was derived from the Mongol words for strength and wolf, a sign of his descent from that noble and ferocious animal. It was a title that would go down in the annals of history, surpassing the names of many, including his own, in fame and infamy, striking fear into the hearts of many, but stoking love and pride in every Mongol that would ever speak it, and likely does that still to this day. Henceforth, Temujin will be known to the world as Genghis Khan. And that's the end of part four of the Mongols series. Very nice. Thanks. It was long. You did good. You sat through it. I'm proud of you. Um, Thank you. (laughs) So, yeah. So, I know that was a long one. Um, We don't want to add too much else, I don't think. Um, But I hope that you guys enjoyed. And, um, yeah, it took me a long time to write that one. But I promise you that will probably be the longest, densest episode. Uh, We just had to cover about... 25 years of Chinggis Khan's life in uh, in in an episode because yeah. I don't I didn't want this to turn into a 10 episode series so yeah. Uh, so yeah so we did that and now it'll be smaller chunks and I there's not there's not that many years left of his life left so <laughs> yeah. all the all the crazy shit that he does is coming up and uh, I wanted to get to that so the next episode that we do of this whenever that is will be now that he's conquered the step. What else There's is there only, to conquer? Yep. Time to turn, e- uh, turn west. 
turn south first. Yeah, south and then west. Yep. So, more fun shit's coming. Genghis ain't yep. done yet, just because he's almost 50. Nope. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. Um, once again, this has been the Left on Red podcast. Uh, as we mentioned at the start of the episode, please check out our playlists. This episode will be on the series playlist. All of the music mm-hmm. that I choose will be on the uh, LU Rippers playlist. Um, continue to share us with your friends, to yep. rate us on whatever you listen to us on, and whatever you can to kind of help spread the word. Um, yeah, we uh, we spread by word of mouth. Uh, so the best way to help us out is to tell people about us. Yep. Uh, so, you know, tell your coworkers, tell your friends, tell your family, anybody that you know that listens to podcasts is into history or wants to get brain damage. Please tell them about us. Um, but yeah, no, that's uh, you know, it's one way that you can help us. The other way that you can help us, again, like Cam just said, uh, you can rate and review us on the podcast uh, app of your choice. I know Apple, Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can do that with. You can rate us on Spotify. Um, I use Overcast. I honestly don't even know if you can rate and review on there, but I know you know other apps as well. You can. So mm-hmm. if you can do that and you can tell people about us, that's how you can uh, help us out. And we appreciate all that you do. The show keeps growing, so mm-hmm. hopefully we're doing something right. Yep. Um, more good stuff to come, and we will see you all very soon. All right. Peace. Bye.